Hey, it's Whitney. In the intro to this episode, we mentioned the shootings in Buffalo, New York, which happened on May 14th, killing 10 people and wounding three. But because this is America, we need to mention two other mass shootings that, rest assured, in upcoming episodes, we will also be talking about. These are the shootings at the Irvine Taiwanese Presbyterian Church, which killed one and wounded five, and the shootings at the Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, which killed 19 students and wounded two adults. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the forthcoming novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And today, like all of you, I'm sure we're reeling from the recent shooting in Buffalo, New York. This brutal, inhumane hate crime targeting Black Americans is the outcome of unchecked white supremacy. And this is just completely abhorrent racist violence. We plan our episodes slightly in advance, so we wanted to let you know that we will be doing a related show soon. In the meantime, we mourn and remember the 10 people slain in Buffalo, and we stand in solidarity with those fighting against anti-Black racism. In today's show, we're talking about something I've been following closely for several weeks, widespread protests in Sri Lanka, which I write about and where much of my family is from. I've been reading about this, not that I'm any sort of expert, uh, but the protests sound like a really big deal. I think it's an important subject for us to talk about. They're also just really massive, and they've been going on in one form or another since March. I've never seen anything like this. Um, I don't really think I'm an expert either, but I have certainly been reading about and following Sri Lanka-related news for a while. And just this is unprecedented. Tens of thousands of people on the streets of Colombo, the capital, and also in other parts of the country, which I think is like not even reported as much. And I read about the protests when I wake up and I read about them before I go to sleep. And I haven't really been sleeping that much, but let's not get into that. And unlike any other protests I've ever seen there, they just really people all across civil society are turning out for these protests and raising placards and meeting each other. And it's amazing to watch even from afar. Of course, and it's also across different groups that have been at odds with each other in the past sometimes, which we'll be discussing later on in this talk. But The protests are about economic conditions in Sri Lanka, which between mismanagement, the pandemic, and the war in Ukraine have reached dire straits. People are struggling, as I understand it, to buy basics like gas and food. There are power outages. Prices have gone up noticeably, but the BB says that food prices there have gone up as much as 30% in a year. And you thought American inflation was bad. So, I mean, it's so bad there that some school exams were even canceled because of a shortage of paper or things like that. Um, and protesters are demanding accountability from the Rajapaksas, the family that has dominated government since about 2005. And they, they rose to power by promising an end to the Sri Lankan civil war, which they um, quite brutally delivered. And we'll talk about that also later in the show. Um, and I'm honored that today we're joined by a friend of mine, Sunila Galapati, who's here to talk about these protests. Sunila started her working life at the Royal Shakespeare Company as a dramaturg on the company's classical and new repertoires, continued that work at Live Theatre Newcastle, commissioning and advising professional playwrights in developing and directing documentary theatre pieces. Returning to Sri Lanka, Sunila spent two years as director of the Gaul Literary Festival, 2009 and 2010, um, and I was lucky to meet her in 2009. And her freelance work in the arts spans literary, film, theater, dance, and visual arts projects. She's been a visiting lecturer at Newcastle University and the Open University of Sri Lanka, as well as a Fulbright visiting fellow at Brown. 
She's worked with Raking Leaves on its open edit project as an editor for Commonwealth Writers and as a consulting editor with Himal South Asian. Sunila has been a trustee of the Gratian Prize and was the Asian region judge for the Commonwealth Short Story Prize in 2018. She's the author of A Long Watch, one of my absolute favorite books set in Sri Lanka, which is the retelling the memoir of a prisoner of war. Sunila, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you for asking me. Thanks for joining us. Um, wait, where are you right now? I'm in Colombo in my living room. Okay. So it's fun. I mean, we're doing this late at night in in, uh, and I, in Kansas City and Minneapolis, respectively, and it's the morning there. Yeah, I've just got my children right? off to school. But the house is quiet for about three hours. Right. Well, we don't need that long, hopefully. <laughs> um, thank you for being with us. The rallying cry of the protest is hashtag go to go home. And the Gota mentioned here is the current president of the country, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, who is from the Sinhalese ethnic majority, and he seems to have no intention of going home. And so our regular listeners are probably familiar with a lot of this background because we've talked about Sri Lanka a little bit on this show before, but just sort of the quick review, Gotabaya's family, the Rajapaksas, um, specifically his, his brother Mahinda was president when um, the government and its security forces defeated the Tamil Tigers and delivered an end to Sri Lanka's civil war in 2009. The war, which was between singly's dominated government security forces and militants from the ethnic Tamil minority, most notoriously the Tigers, ended on May 18th. So we're actually talking to you. Well, it's the... It, Aren't you writing a book about this, <laughs> Or have you not written a book um, about I this? I turned in that book today, actually. Okay. I turned in my final proofs yeah, earlier today. Oh, well done. Thank you. Kind of a weird day to do that, actually, to be totally honest, because it's May 18th for us. It's May 19th in the morning for you. And so we're talking to you on the anniversary of the war's ending. And that victory made the Rajapaksas just extraordinarily popular. And they've long campaigned on a security platform, strong military response and militarization. They're, they're known for abuses of power, some of which we'll talk about a little bit later in the show. So the current protests and their scale are a huge change of fortune for the Rajapaksas. And their response to a lot of this, although correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, obviously I'm looking at this from afar, has been that the crisis is mostly the result of external factors. I raise my skeptical eyebrow at this, but I wonder if um, we can talk a little bit about why the protesters are blaming Gotabaya specifically um, and what's led to the present situation. I mean, you're absolutely right. This is a huge change of fortunes. And... It, we should say it's not the first change of fortune because, of course, the Rajapaksas were voted out in 2015 uh, by the public and then brought back in 2019 on a platform for, of national security and, um, and really of um, racism against minorities. Um, and they are extraordinarily well protected by the the security forces by the sort of apparatus they've put in place for their protection so and have have engendered a culture of fear over the over the years so it, it it's an extraordinary feeling sometimes to be on the street shouting go to go home it's not something i could possibly have imagined um two years ago when the rajapaksas returned to power or certainly 10 years ago when they were in power before some of what has happened here, I mean, the Rajapaksas have sort of pointed to the pandemic and uh, the war in Ukraine. And of course, the pandemic, you know, tourism has been a huge industry for Sri Lanka. So 
that was impacted by COVID. But there's also, um, there's been real economic mismanagement. In addition to kind of campaigning on a on a um, security platform, the Rajapaksas have also consistently, especially when people have emphasized or have called for justice, the Rajapaksas have sort of countered by basically ignoring that and sort of saying development, development. And it seems like actually... So they're like the bushes? I mean, that's an interesting analogy. I don't... <laughs> well, I'm just thinking of a family that like won the presidency, was out of favor, then made a comeback, you know, emphasized security, started wars. Anyway, whatever, you know, that, that it's not a probably I mean, exact it, parallel. I think we might need a bit longer to unpack Yeah, that I mean, it would be like if Jeb <laughs> were Secretary of Defense and like Laura were... I don't know. And like Jenna and I don't I don't know all the Bush. I don't know the Bush family tree the way that I arguably know the Rajapaksa one. But there I mean, there's something like at one point there were something like 60 Rajapaksas in government, like the like the ambassador to the U.S. was was their first cousin. Okay, I mean, just they were they're everywhere, (laughs) they're everywhere. And but they were sort of, you know, the response was sort of um, like, it's not us. But but the protesters have kept yelling, Gotha, go home. And they're kind of undaunted by this response, you know, like the pandemic, the war in Ukraine has affected the food supply or 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 um, because there's I mean, there's questions about like imports and the imports and exports like farming, what kind of domestic production there is. And so people like what are you having a hard time getting right now? Like what is the economic situation on the ground in Colombo? I mean, let me go a, li- a few steps back in what you were describing. You're absolutely right. There are it's the problems are so multiple that it's almost impossible to start talking about them. You know, um, we have a huge problem because of a disastrous tax cut that was brought in affecting government revenue. Um, We have a history of abuses of power. We have corruption. We have nepotism. We have a balance of payments crisis. Uh, We have uh, an overnight decision to go to completely organic farming and end the use of chemical fertilizers, again, disastrous in the way that it was brought in. So, you know, on a straight line change of, of, of course. Uh, so we have an impending food crisis. Um, I'm not an expert on any of these subjects, but one feels surrounded by the problems of mismanagement uh, that have led us to this place. And yes, the response seems to be largely one of denial you know, blame anything else, talk, you know, the, the, the president has made several addresses, always against a backdrop of some Sinhala Buddhist mon- monument in the country in which he sort of reminds people that, uh, you know, his family essentially, but, you know, his regime won the war. And, um, and they, they often announce that they handle the pandemic better than anyone else did. Uh, and it's, you know, there is that problem when the lie is so blatant that one doesn't know how to, to start engaging with it or there isn't, basically when the lie is blatant, there is a, it's impossible to engage with it. Um, and so for a long time, we've just had that sort of standoff. So the current um, protests and the current refusal from the, of the public to kind of take the lie anymore is quite extraordinary. That's fascinating to me that they, that they, the denial is, you know, we handle the pandemic better than anyone else because that's the same thing they used to say about, or maybe still are saying about terrorism. Yeah. I mean, I think there's probably not much point getting into the, um, how, how, um, 
I don't know how to even put it. I mean, how, how blatant the delusion is or the lie is, uh, the n- denial is. I, I am on uh, a podcast that's probably the most Sri Lankan-facing literary podcast in America. But I am not the Sri Lankan expert here. You're assuming some things. So I'm the person who asked <laughs> the dumb uh, American questions, but and I have a couple. Just two. We know now, you've, you've brought up, I've, no, I have many, I'm sure, and we'll get to all of them. Um, but you, you mentioned the war in re- Ukraine and the way it's affecting food prices in, in Sri Lanka. But we know that there's been a lot of reporting in America that India, obviously, has been supportive of, the, of Russia in that war. And I just want to know where the Rajapaksas stand on that particular issue, if there's some similarities between what India is doing or if they're staying neutral or if they're on the Ukraine side. And then you also said earlier that it was very rare and strange for you to be in the streets protesting uh, because of the security apparatus there. Do you mean because you fear being arrested or you fear for your physical safety doing something like that? So I belong to the group of people in this country who are arguably the most powerful in that I am from the single majority, I'm affluent. Um, so I'm not going to speak about myself in this context, but I think, yes, there has been enormous repression of dissent um, uh, across the board. And people have known for a long time that they risked their own safety if they came out against the government. So for them to be doing it, um, I think, is extremely significant. Um, but yes, even I find myself surprised by the things that I'm willing to say out loud in public that we did censor in ourselves for many years. You know, we said them privately in trusted circles, but we would be careful what we said in a, in a, in a room or on a street um, full of people that we didn't know. And I mean, that's one of the nice things about the protests also that the degree to which people, you know, you talk to people you've never met. Um, we have a family joke that we have, you know, a number of protest friends now, people we've met since we started protesting uh, in early March. Thank you. That's super helpful. I just want to follow up on that one question about the, just to orient uh, our American listeners, do the Rajapaksas have a position on the war in Ukraine? Are they like, a, are they leaning Russian like India? So I don't know the ins and outs of the government's um, response to the war in Ukraine, but I do know that largely I would characterize it as a cowardly response. I believe we abstained at the vote, uh, the UN Security Council vote, um, and Sri Lanka, the Sri Lankan government uh, rarely makes a principle showing at these things. Um, I remember a, a terribly embarrassing vote on Palestine a few years ago, but that is the extent of what I know about the government's relationship to uh, the war in Ukraine and to other allies who have responses, uh, to who have positions in the war in Ukraine. Um, but we, we do know that you wrote a piece for, uh, about the protests for the Hindu, and I wonder if you would read a little bit of that for us. Sure. And this is just from a, 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 a brief piece about attending the protests. Uh, in which I talk about um, protesting from from the early days of March. It seemed that suddenly, across the country, there was a chorus of calls for better accountability and governance. It didn't matter that only 15 people came out in one place if in a neighbouring area there were 100 more. The connections between injustices had been made more apparent. 
I feel this proliferated momentum had a lot to do with why the current wave of protest has been irresistible, despite the best efforts of the government to stamp it out. In fact, we have the government to thank for pushing the wave higher. When they cracked down on a protest in the president's neighborhood, when they announced a state of emergency, a social media ban, and a police curfew to stop a convergence of protests, when people defied orders and came to the street anyway, and legions of lawyers showed themselves ready to offer the public their protection, the dam seemed to break. Most amazingly, the dam broke peacefully. The protests that followed you're more likely to have read about, especially at Colombo's Goldface, where Gotagogama, a village name for the president's desired departure, includes a legal aid tent, a library, an artist's tent, a people's university, and more. Elsewhere, in the ceremonial hall that is Colombo's monument to independence from British rule, activists have been organizing teach-outs by individuals able to bring others up to speed on a range of subjects, be it the long oppression of Malaya Tamil communities, or understanding the constitutional options available in this crisis, or taking apart the idea of unity. One notable feature of the current protests is this emphasis on learning better. Early in April, I saw a poster for a protest that had a banner across it saying, and I paraphrase, we are new to this, call if you can help. This is not to romanticize the current moment. The national flag is waved liberally, as if to signal that monolithic majoritarian oppression is here too. We hear reports of sexual harassment, from the outside, I read an ever-shifting balance between the tides of erasure and acknowledgement. But unusually for Sri Lanka, we don't seem to have created an entrenched dichotomy between those who valorize and condemn the site. Over weeks, more groups have entered, deepening its meaning. A friend described the moment in which women's groups from Batacloak chanted funeral laments at the gate of the presidential secretariat, a focal point of Gotagogama usually held by student activists. Others captured on video the cheers and applause for student unions entering the village after a march, a show of solidarity rarely seen, student protests being more often dismissed by the middle classes as disruptive and a waste of t time and public money. There have been placards held up about war crimes, a rare sight in the South. Many of these are things I have learnt by report. I visit the site during the daytime, once or twice a week. We wore our children out in March, so now we engage differently. I take my five-year-old son to the children's corner of, Go of the Gotagogama library, where he reads books and draws pictures on cut-up pieces of old cardboard boxes. It is almost unbearably hot inside the tent. I drag home a wilted child. But my son always wants to return, and I volunteer for an occasional shift in the same space. Intriguingly, my husband and I each chose to spend a part of our birthdays at GGG, as it's known. When we've not got ourselves to the site for days, we start itching to return. We have come to know it as a cultural space, as well as a site of protest. When I reported to my son a slightly moderated version of what happened on the 9th of May, his greatest anger was with the, with the police because they wet the library. We go to Gogama because it is a place in which we feel we live in a functioning society. And yet we don't, of course. I worry that we're all too focused on the protests and the politics of this moment, 
We know too little, don't report enough, how people are surviving or not surviving this crisis, as they try to get by without consistent supplies of electricity, fertilizer, fuel, food, functioning public institutions, milk, medicine, money, or peace of mind. Thank you so much. It's so interesting to hear you read that because I think the thing that it makes me think about actually is Occupy Wall Street. Just thinking about, I mean, which had a library. And and I, I, I do think that the protests in Sri Lanka have gained a lot from a kind of um, global vocabulary of protest, that it was possibly quicker to get to some of these things because they'd happened in other places before. Um, but it is still remarkable to me that that emphasis on learning, because for years, it feels like for decades, or as long as we can remember, people have taken sides and been unwilling to hear about other people, others' experience. So... I wonder whether it is because these protests are led by a younger generation and there is a shift there, or whether there's been an accumulation of understanding because of the range of injustices, because of you know quite how quite how much of a state of disrepair we're in. It's interesting because you know as we were talking about before, one of the startling things about the protests, and maybe I mean this is part of maybe the newness and the desire to learn. So many people are people who haven't maybe been protesting um, and specifically haven't been protesting the Rajapaksas. And, and many of the protesters are from the Rajapaksas base, members of the Singla community, um, people who had voted for him, had voted for his brother. And as we mentioned earlier, we're talking to you, you know, it's the morning after the anniversary of the war for you. And, and I've been paying attention also to how Tamils, Muslims, and other members of Sri Lanka's minority communities, which have, have gone through a lot of repression from the Rajapaksas um, in various contexts, I've been watching how they've been participating in the protests. And I'm curious if you know anything about how the protests included the anniversary today. Um, there was a small memorial held at Gotagogama yesterday to remember the victims of the war. Um, and specifically the war dead at Mullivaikal. I wasn't at it, so I feel I can't really speak about it as such, but that it took place in itself was, I have to describe it really as a relief, um, because we have been so worried about whether the protests really take on um, the injustices of the war towards the Tamil community and the whole, you know, the war crimes, the disappearances, they haven't always featured as key demands in some lists of demands that protesters have made, um, justice, accountability for the the crimes of the war. Uh, and I think they are not, I mean, I think it would be fair to say they're not yet central, but any sign that we see moving towards that um, feels like a relief and, you know, maybe a small sign that there is some hope of progress because I think, you know, we have to be able to do that by now. If if these protests take place and somehow still exclude that history, then we are nowhere. We have been, um, it's 13 years since the end of the war. I know that these things will take time and that they will sort of accrue, but we need to be making the steps, the, the earliest steps at least. And just a little um, 
I guess, review for the folks who are listening to this who may not recall this, but um, my family is from the Thummel community, and um, although I grew up in the United States, and also sort of at the end of the war, um, what happened were many Thummel civilian casualties, um, and I mean, the number and scale of that is something that's been much discussed in the years since, um, but it's official, it's, it's a, it's a official acknowledgement has been few and far between and slow and, um, and often, often just absent entirely. So to see it and see it among the demands from some of the protesters and to see kind of different nationalisms in some ways also battling at some of the protests has been, um, really fascinating to see, but those conversations seem to be happening in a way they really weren't before. And it's a, it's a constant shift. I mean, I have to admit that even for, for myself, even for my own household, the mo- you know, there was a distinct shift between the protests of March that were small, specific pro- neighborhood protests, um, and then this moment, this sort of explosion that happened uh, in the first week of April, where suddenly, you know, the roundabout near my house was full of people um, waving the national flag. And we, I have to admit, recoiled slightly at that moment. It felt like... You know, we're used to seeing the national flag waved at cricket matches and sort of Sinhala majority victories. Um, and, you know, there was that feeling that, oh, we had landed in another nationalist moment and um, that was uncomfortable. And I and that and we know that that is more uncomfortable for many for for many communities in this country. Um, and sort of wondered how how welcoming a space the protest felt like um, at that point. But there does seem to be a more kind of, you know, some missteps are made and then they're corrected. Um, that happens, at, it seems to happen quicker than it would have in the past. Um, or somebody will raise a critique of the protest site and the protest site, people at the protest site will, will respond. Um, and rather than kind of hit back. Um, that seems to be a, a shift. Um, but it's very difficult to pr- characterize these protests in any sort of sweeping terms because they are made up of disparate groups all over the country. And then there is a slight risk that we talk about the Gota Gogama site at Gaul phase in Colombo as though it represents all of the protests. Uh, it's just the highest profile one. I mean, I was just, uh, you know, before I sort of came on to speak to you, I was looking at the list of um, protests for today that I've, that, you know, we see we see daily. There's uh, Colombo, Anuradhapura, Gaul, Kandy, Badulla, Kurunagala, Matara, Bataklo. These are areas all over the island. Um, and, and they and there are go-to-go gummers set up in several towns. Um, and for example, in Bataclo, it's not a go-to-go gummer; it's a daily walk for justice. And I think that is justice of all forms. Um, and the student unions are marching to parliament today. So um, it's sort of taking taken off in all directions simultaneously. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. The uh, protests were nonviolent for a long time, and then earlier this month, supporters of the Rajapaksas assaulted the peaceful protesters. Protesters retaliated. A number of politicians' houses were burned. Um, after this, Mahinda, am I saying that right? Is that, got that? Okay. Mahinda Raj- Rajapaksa um, 
Godabaya's brother, who had been prime minister and who was president at the end of the war, resigned. There were also earlier in, in April resignations from other parts of the of his uh, cabinet. And then another unpopular figure whose name Sugi is going to say to me, because she was originally going to ask this question, and I know that I can't say this person's name, you was appointed the new prime minister. What's what's that guy's name? Ranil Wickremesinghe. Yes, that guy. Uh, what does that mean? Who is he? What's happening? What's going? Why does everybody dislike this guy? <laughs> um, I'll answer. Can, may I answer that for myself? Please. Sure. Um, this is a. I just want to go back a second though, because yes, on the 9th of May, um, supporters of the government assaulted protesters. Initially, protesters did not retaliate, and that I think is very significant. At the site where they were attacked, they didn't retaliate. Certainly, in in numbers, they didn't retaliate. Later on that day, there were groups around uh, the city of Colombo in particular, but also all over the country, that that did retaliate very violently, beating protesters, uh, sorry, beating supporters of the government, putting them into lakes, checking whether people were with the struggle or not. I mean, chilling, chilling moments. Um, But initially, there... uh, there wasn't a retaliation. So I think there is this tension between elements of the protest uh, groups who are very strictly adhering to their nonviolence and then also other groups, vigilantes, etc., um, that are being provoked into uh, terrible violence. Um, let me now go to the question you asked about Rani Vikramasinghe. Um, why is Rani Vikramasinghe a contentious figure um, I don't want to answer that for 22 million people. Uh, I shall answer it uh, for myself and for the conversations I've, that I've been a part of. Fanny Wickremesinghe has been Prime Minister five times before. This is the sixth time. He's not. He doesn't represent a change from the old order in any way, shape or form. Um, he is considered to be a close ally of the Rajapaksas in the sense of um, this sort of elite club that runs the country, that protects each other uh, from the public. He's just like, he's like whack-a-mole. I don't know if you're familiar with this American arcade game where a mole pops up and you whack it with a hammer and then it comes up in another hole. And I just think of this as his prime ministerships. And But he's also, like, to be specific, a mole. Um, in that, like, there's an obsequious quality to him, the sense that what would he not do to ascend to power again? And so I will just sneak my take in there also. <laughs> no, and I think that's a, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, there is a strong feeling that he's in this for himself. He's in this for a small, you know, small affluent minority, if, if anything, of his cronies and and class. And he's not a figure that we expect to deliver um, social justice or protect the vulnerable people uh, in this country from the worst of this economic crisis. Um, it is very hard to see that uh, to see that coming. And I think, I mean, he really doesn't have any, he doesn't have a political vision. His political vision is himself. His political vision is looking in the mirror, as far as I can tell. But um, it's interesting because, like, the headlines today are sort of, um, like for the past couple of days have been PM says, and PM meaning prime minister, meaning Renel Wickremesinghe, the, the worst months of our lives are ahead of us. Brace yourselves, Sri Lankans. Um, and you mentioned before uh, states of emergency. And 
I wonder um, kind of what you think is coming next and also those government responses, which are in some ways coming from the war, um, things like, you know, Sri Lanka had a state of emergency every month for like decades during the war. And and you saw the government invoke that during the protests as sort of like, right, I mean, in some ways, very similar to like Black Lives Matter. I'm, I'm here in Minneapolis where you would see, um, you know, curfew or, you know, we're doing this for your own good kind of things like take your take your please go and be polite and orderly um, with your objections. And I'm I'm curious what you think will happen next and also how you see uh, the political conflict around ethno-nationalism and that security apparatus surfacing in the responses to the protests now. I don't know what's going to happen next. Um, but, you know, I, I believe that as of yesterday, over 800 arrests have been made. Oh, wow. Um, and in response to the violence of May 9th. And according to protesters, many, many of those arrested have been protesters uh, at different Gota Gogama sites around the country. Um, and there is a terrible fear that it will be the usual in that people from minorities will be, you know, stamped on hardest. People from outlying areas will be stamped on, uh, you know, it's, there will be some protections in Colombo. Um, but we don't know what's happening next, and all we do know is that we only have a culture of repression as as response from the state. Um, you know, time and time again, that has been the mode of response, and it is almost like it never occurs to those in power to consider a different approach that maybe even to their own benefit, because you know, as the, as they have seen in the recent you know in recent months. Every attempt has backfired. You know, they announce curfew and people don't stay at home. Um, in fact, those those responses have te have tended to kind of push the protests uh, to protest higher. Um, so, but I don't feel that we're in. At the same time, I don't feel that we're in territory that we that we have been in exactly before. And I think one never is in exactly the same territory again. So I I don't feel I can predict what happens next but I mean one of the one of the reasons that we are despondent at the moment is that by making this deal that Ryan McMissinger made to become prime minister with no conditions attached uh, in a sense he has strengthened the government strengthened the regime the protesters were trying to bring down and um, really betrayed the public because in many senses, there is also this feeling that people have worked very hard to make change possible, to create this momentum to, for change. And yet in Parliament, we don't see anyone really harness that momentum and move in any direction uh, towards a meaningful change. I mean, it's always dangerous to make comparisons when it comes to covering international news. And we're always trying to fit other people's stories into our own frames of reference. Witness my comments about the Bushes earlier in this interview. Um, but this is something that you've worked to counter with collaborative storytelling, as in your book, A Long Watch. I wonder what you think the press is getting wrong and or right as it covers this situation. I mean, the international press in uh, covering the current situation in Sri Lanka has been somewhat baffling because we keep seeing we keep seeing articles um, 
Actually, this was before there had been any significant violence. We kept seeing articles that would describe things like clashes outside the residences of uh, the ruling family, or, um, you know, there has been ongoing violence for weeks in Sri Lanka. It was almost like no one bothered to actually find out what had happened. They heard protest and they went to a kind of establishment response, which is protests are violent, people riot, people in poor countries certainly riot, brown people riot. You know, it was, it felt un unbelievably lazy uh, above all else. That reminds I me mean, of you know, George Orwell's essay, Politics in the English Language, where he talks about the laziness of description uh, and using cliches like clashes, you know, which mask what's actually happening on um, yeah, George Orwell is right here in my list of in my pile of books holding the the voice recorder in place. Okay, good. Well, we'll um, open them up when we need them. I think I think you should do this at some point. Actually, ask people what what's in their pile <laughs> of books <laughs> on which they place I have the Mueller report. Is what's holding up my microphone. Oh, really? <laughs> How thick is that? Give me a, <laughs> a read. It's like that. It's about that. It's a big one. I can't show it to you because it's holding the microphone. <laughs> yeah, I've got you know. As we've already described. I've got Rana Das Gupta's Capital. I've got a biography of John Peel, uh, George Orwell's essays, something about you know manuscript makers in the uh, mid uh, medieval manuscript makers in England. I have other. <laughs> my others are books that I was supposed to blurb but somehow forgot or screwed right, up on. Right. Yes. <laughs> Everyone's got I a have, list like that. <laughs> I have a long watch. Um, <laughs> Oh, how's that? What, what kind of book is that? <laughs> um, the Broken Palmyra. Right. Um, yeah, it's a very um, uh, oh, wait, feminism right and nationalism in the third world. I can't believe this. Is, no guest has ever done this. Sunilla. Right underneath the <laughs> Mueller report, I have the tough guys of pro hockey, which is a book that I had since I was a little kid. We contain multitudes, man. This is this is this is the best question. <laughs> um, but I digress. Where where were we? You were talking about clashes. Um, the international and how coverage of George Orwell and the yes. Orwellian language there. I mean, and they're sort of they're sort of automatic phrases. Violent protests. You don't, you don't see the word protests without violent in front of it. Um, and it has been really frustrating for people here, particularly, I think, those who are on the street, who are, you know, we are amazed that protests have stayed peaceful for the most part, given the strain that people are under economically and in every other way. Uh, so then to see those protests sort of described so casually as violent um, has been um, has been very difficult. And I mean, there are so many things, you know, uh, you get these, these, you know, standard pieces, you know, that, you know, evoke, you know, uh, a there's a seller of bottled drinks on the edge of the protest, and we're told what's in his head. Now, I'm not sure that that reporter really asked the guy what was in his head. Um, or whether, you know, he or she is imagining. Um, just very lazy journalism. Um, that is easy to get away with when they think they know the situation they're describing or, you know, you're, you're writing for readers who may think they know the situation that you're describing. Um, so that has been very frustrating. And um, I saw, in fact, that Himal South Asian has just produced a, a podcast uh, talking about parachute journalism, which I'm really looking forward to listening to. Um, well, we will have to link to that. And, you know, um, apart from Mira Srinivasan at The Hindu, I mean, I haven't read a single good art, international article about 
the protests in Sri Lanka that felt true to what we see day to day. So for our listeners, we will link back to, we had Mira on the show um, talking about um, authoritarianism in Sri Lanka um, and in South Asia. And um, we'll also find, we'll also find that Himal South Asian podcast. I think um, it is really to sort of look at how these things are described. It reminds me also of, I think that there's a slate column, wait, maybe you remember this, but it's like how this American event would be covered if it were in the global South. Right. Right. Yes. I remember um, that. And it sort of takes, it takes like, yeah, these news events and then writes about them with sort of like violent clashes outside the Presbyterian church in Kansas city or, or I don't know, like what, what have you, um, which I, which I quite enjoy because it really highlighted it in a way that I felt like I hadn't, hadn't seen before. Um, but yeah, I, I hope that the press will keep reporting. I think that's the other thing, right? It's just like whether it's covered at all. Um, and then it's covered in one story, which sort of try, sort of digests everything that's happened as, you know, they take the events of today and characterize all the events past in the same language. So it's, uh, it is very frustrating. You do get these omnibusters. And it, one of the things I was noticing on Twitter after the, um, the violence was that there were these tweets about Gota Gogama, like returning to its previous status um before they had been assaulted and it was sort of like people are here at the village making tea and talking to each other peacefully but no one is i don't know but like why is no one seeing this and i was yeah so um i have largely yes been following mira and twitter um although occasionally also the new york times and and such so um we will we will return to her coverage as you suggest um and we appreciate so much you're taking the time for this conversation. It's really helpful to hear what it's like on the ground um, at the protests and in Colombo. And we want to remind our listeners to check out A Long Watch, which is a completely brilliant and provocative piece of work um, in its structure that I think everyone will be really interested in. It made me think really hard about how we tell stories. So, Sonola, thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub. The show is produced by Anne Knigendorf. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these spots, you'll find links to our LitHub Radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned in this episode. And I can tell you that the LitHub radio show notes for this particular episode will be chock full of things that I personally feel very strongly about. Um, so I hope you check them out. You can also find video versions of our episodes on our YouTube channel. And don't forget our website, which is at fnfpodcast.net. And that has a full video and audio archive, as well as episodes grouped by theme for educators. I would love to hear from professors or teachers or instructors who are using uh, the Fiction Nonfiction podcast in their classroom. So if you are one of those people, would you drop us a line and let us know? Because I'd love to hear how that went. Um, until next time, this has been the Fiction Nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub, and we hope to see you out there soon. <laughs>